0: Listener production. Listener News acknowledges the Turrbal people as the traditional custodians of Meangin,
1: Brisbane, the land on which we're recording this series. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples listening. This podcast includes explicit language, adult themes, and discussions on harmful alcohol use. The day after my mum died, my best friend offered to put together a slideshow for her wake. I was too overwhelmed to do it myself, so she went and collated thousands of photos from my mum's home and produced it into a slideshow. Mum's wake was at the Caxton. That's an iconic Brisbane institution. It followed a funeral that was attended by what felt like most of Brisbane. Thousands of people up at St Bridget's Church It sits high on the top of Red Hill and overlooks the city. Most people had made it from the church down to the wake. It was there I stood and watched that slideshow for the very first time. It was the sort of photos you'd expect to see that filled the screen. Mum as a kid, mum with her many friends and us as a family in our early years. But then a photo I had never seen before flashed up on the screen. It was my mum, a silver ring on her wedding finger cuddling a newborn baby and a young man standing next to her, his hand across her back. It looked like a family portrait. I turned to my friend and I said, who was in that photo? And she said, that's your mum and your dad and you as a baby. And I said, that's not my dad and that's definitely not me. Hi, I'm Amelia Roba and I'm a journalist from Brisbane. This is Secrets We Keep, shame lies in family. For the last 12 years, I've tried to find out who my mum was, searching for answers and some sort of closure. In the process of trying to understand what happened to my own mum, I opened a Pandora's box of lies and secrets of the 1960s and 70s in Australia. Young women, pregnant and unwed, given no choice in what happened to their bodies or their babies. And I had the baby. And the only thing I remember about that is they took the baby. I had the baby. I didn't see him, didn't touch him, didn't kind of hold him. There's adult children still grappling with the actions of a system decades later.
0: You need to open all the files. And you need to contact all these people that it happened to.
1: You'll hear the stories of those women and many more as this podcast evolves. But it all began with me trying to understand who my mum really was. My mum, Cecilia, was born in 1955 in Brisbane. She died at age 56 in 2011. My relationship with my mum at times had been strained. When I saw this photo at the wake, I wondered whether it was my key to understanding her and her early death. Um, and if yeah, you need to yeah, take a call nice. or anything. Um, and then you can no, I won't need to take call. headphones. I'd asked plenty of my mum's friends about her life before me, but if anyone was going to know anything, it would be Joe.
0: My name's Joe Fraser. My maiden name was
1: Mathers. I remember Joey from when I was younger. She was one of mum's very best friends. She had a daughter around my age and we'd always be at each other's houses. The mums were always co-parenting and having a great old time. And it reminds me of my closest friendships now. She joins me in the studio. She's the same person I remember as a kid. She's well-spoken, energetic, bubbly and blonde, just like she's always been.
0: I knew Cecilia, I met her in a bar at the RE Hotel, probably when I was about, I don't know, I think maybe 18. The Royal Exchange, or the
1: RE Hotel, was and still is the place to go for uni and college kids, famous then and now for its boozy Sunday sessions. When Joe and Mum met in 1974, they would have only just been allowed to go to the pub, as Queensland had only recently dropped its drinking age from 21 to 18. What were your first impressions that night at the RE when you came across her?
0: (laughs) I actually had a shop that I opened up when I was 16 years of age at Indrapilly Shopping Town, and I had this new boyfriend I'd met, and he took me along to the RE, and he was a lot older than I was, and I met all these people, and I met Cecilia, and it just so happened that Cecilia was working directly upstairs in travel at Indrapilly Shopping Town. Indrapilly is in
1: Brisbane's inner-western suburbs... At the time in the mid 1970s, Brizzy's population had only just nudged past a million. It was a pretty small place then, and in some ways, it really still is. Everyone here is like one degree of separation,
0: and that was definitely the case for Mum and Jo as well. So, of course, we just hit it off straight away. I just loved her, she loved me. And from that day on, every spare second I was bored at work, I was upstairs in the travel shop or vice versa. And we just became really, really good mates. She was just one of those people that I just clicked with and she clicked with me. We had an instant rapport. At the time, a lot of kids left school early,
1: around 16 or 17. If you were a woman, you could go to secretary school or into retail. But the vast majority went to teachers' or nurses' colleges. The expectation at the time was that you'd eventually end up marrying and be a stay-at-home mum. So it does make sense that two working 18-year-olds became great pals. What was her personality
0: like? Oh, she was bubbly. She was always bubbly. She was such a people person. She loved people, loved to chat, never shut up. Sounds like myself, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, um, No, she was just great. She was just, you could tell that she came from a really good family. She had really good values. She was just a nice bird. Mum's family were
1: devout Catholics, Irish Catholics to be exact. They were that type of family that went to church multiple times a week and had a priest and a nun in the family. The good old
0: saying Irish Catholic guilt might explain what happened next. So Cecilia and I were pretty close. I mean, we lived in each other's pockets and we knew everything about each other and it wasn't something that she talked about a lot but the story she told me, she told me that she had fallen pregnant and her parents had forced her into marrying Michael. It actually wasn't
1: the first time I'd heard the name Michael. The day after mum died, I was with her family and we were filling in the death certificate. The funeral director was asking questions, like first name, last name, mother's name, father's name, and then he asked how many marriages. One is what my brother and I had said, and two is what her family replied. And that's when I saw the name of mum's first husband, Michael Davies. It just hadn't clicked to me when I saw the photo at the wake and my mum's family had definitely never said anything about her getting married because she was pregnant.
0: And she said Michael didn't want to marry and Cecilia didn't want to marry and she said the stress of it was so intense and so terrible that she ended up having a miscarriage. That was the story she told me. And did you believe it? Yes, I did. yeah, And I had no reason not to believe her because we were so honest with each other. A miscarriage might
1: make sense, but I still kept wondering, who is
0: the baby in that photo? Um she never she never talked about it at all, apart from you know a couple of times that maybe it might have just slipped into the conversation. But from my my reflection of it, you know I don't ever remember it being a huge, Huge thing for Cecilia.
1: It was towards the end of 1979 when Cecilia met my dad, Mark Oberhart. Okay, here we go. Um, Mark Oberhart, Amelia's dad and Cecilia's ex-husband and father of the year. Unofficially, of course. Okay, how and when did you first meet Cecilia?
2: I actually met her when I came back from Sydney and was living in a house and they had a party. And I'd been working at the races and came home from the races.
1: Dad was a sports journal at the time working for the Brisbane Telegraph.
2: She was at that party. And uh, I remember I was talking to her, and this might surprise a few people, but she abused me for being a journalist, which, of course, in the long term proved rather ironic. However, so we didn't get off to the best of starts. It was somewhat rocky.
1: It was a slow old burn, and they didn't officially start dating until early 1980 but it wasn't long before things started to get serious.
2: And we were talking about whether we should move in together or whether or not we perhaps should get married.
1: Around six months into the relationship, Cecilia was posted to London to manage a travel agency. It was a dream job for a young, brizzy gal. Mark Oberhart must have made a pretty big impression on Mum. That relationship was going strong despite the distance.
0: I hadn't met him because I'd been living overseas, and so I'd missed out on all their courting. But I heard about this wonderful guy, this Mark Oberhart, this Mark Oberhart, that. With about 150
2: metres to go. And uh, believe it or not, I actually got a very big trifecta at the races on Melbourne Cup Day. Oh, what a spectacular win. And went around to friends of mine's place to have a drink after the race. And we rang Cecilia and I spoke to her on the phone. And I said, Oh, well, if I'm coming over, we might as well get married. We're going to have a honeymoon in Europe. And she was very thrilled with that idea.
1: <laughs> Anyone who knows my dad, a racing journalist and enthusiast for over 60 years, knows that trifecta was unlikely. He had and still has notorious bad luck when it comes to trifectas.
2: So uh, <laughs> that's how I proposed. And that's probably why we got married, thanks to getting around the large trifecta
1: there was just the small issue of Cecilia's previous marriage.
2: She had been married before and had been divorced. And while that stood up, she wanted to get married in the Catholic Church in England and uh, she needed a papal divorce to do that.
1: How did she tell you, I'd been married before? Can you get it annulled?
2: Well, I just, I was aware she'd been married before, but I come from a period where I just didn't, I couldn't have cared less and I just never asked her about it.
1: I always find it a bit weird that dad didn't ask any questions about mum's first husband. But maybe he's just a product of his time. Dad's memory's a bit blurry, but he thinks he had to visit Cecilia's parents to get the marriage certificate in order to get the annulment. To be clear, this is just a Catholic thing, so Cecilia could get married again in a Catholic church. The annulment came through in the nick of time. In January of 1981, London was a place full of opportunity and optimism. The world was going mad for Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer.
2: Lady Diana was
1: back at the Pimlico Kindergarten where she teaches this morning. Waiting to hear when the couple would announce their engagement. But polite as ever, she was saying nothing about her weekend with Prince Charles at Sandringham to the Assembled Press Corps. Knowing Cecilia, she would have loved that her wedding was in the year of Lady Di's. So what was your wedding day like and what do you remember about
2: the day? Oh, it's a very good day. We got married in London. We got married in the Lady Chapel at Westminster Cathedral.
1: Cecilia got the wedding she wanted in the biggest Catholic church in the UK with her own second cousin, the priest, standing up on the altar. Dad, the biggest atheist you'll ever meet, just went along with her wishes.
2: Everyone joked that the walls would probably fall down with me there. And um, because we were in England, there was only... I think uh, about five or six people at the actual wedding.
1: Joe, who'd been travelling around Europe with another friend, was running late, so we
0: were madly trying to get back from Europe to get there. And we arrived on English soil, and I had a t-shirt on that said, "I'm so happy I could just shit," <laughs> with a big frog on it. We were running so late, so it was like, "Oh my God, do we get in a cab and go straight to the church, and I can be a bridesmaid dressed like this?" Or do we go and get changed and be beautiful and then miss the wedding? So we just went straight to the church. It was so ridiculous.
2: And uh, it was, of course, it was around the same time that uh, Prince Charles and Lady Di got married. In fact, it was the same year. And, of course, Cecilia looked remarkably like Lady Di. And thankfully, I looked nothing like Prince Charles. uh, (laughs) Similar. Yeah, very similar. It was quite a joke at the time.
1: Cecilia put her credentials as a travel agent to good use for the honeymoon.
2: She organised our honeymoon, which uh, I doubt Prince Charles and Lady Di could have afforded, which was winter in um, Europe, staying at five-star hotels and stuff. So, Although we uh, fought across, I think, a bit like World War III. In fact, we fought in about seven different European countries.
1: Joe, who joined the honeymoon, or as we would refer to it these days as a buddy moon, also remembers the tensions starting to simmer.
0: They were just total opposites. The first day we hired a car, Mark drove, Cecilia navigated. It was fought all day. Cecilia wasn't navigating properly. Mark wasn't driving properly. Mark wasn't listening. Cecilia wasn't giving the right direction. By the time we got to where we were going, I was like, oh, my God, give me a drink. It's like, you know, it just was constant. And that's what they were like, hey? Yeah,
1: yeah. They were very niggly couples. They
0: were just total opposites.
1: What was your marriage like?
2: To start off with, good. To start off with, but uh, we just basically, uh, while we had plenty in common uh, when we first started out, we just drifted apart. In fact, we drifted about as far apart as possible because uh, her interests and mine just didn't even uh, touch, let alone overlap, and that's not the basis for a good marriage at all.
1: And did she ever, in those early days when things were happier, did she ever mention to you that she had been pregnant previously or when... Look,
2: she... I heard rumours, obviously. Brisbane's a very small place. And I'd heard rumours that she'd had to get married and she was pregnant, but no-one ever told me that. In
1: 1986, Cecilia was pregnant with me. Did she seem scared or anxious during her pregnancy with me?
2: No, no. In fact, I thought she was, would have been a wonderful mother. She had had at least one. I think, if I remember correctly, this is forty years ago. Two miscarriages before she had had you. So, uh,
1: did she ever give any indication as to why those miscarriages happened? Like, oh, I just think it?
2: they're part and parcel of life.
1: And was she very distressed by those? Yes,
2: she was. I remember that. Well, everyone's distressed by miscarriages. Everybody. So, um, when we had you, we sort of held on till about four or five months before telling everyone she was pregnant.
1: Dad does remember him and mum starting to drift apart after I was born. As the years went on, I obviously didn't pick up on this, but I remember them working long hours. They weren't around very much, and of course I remember the fighting. It didn't matter so much because I was constantly surrounded by my aunties and uncles and my beautiful grandparents. I was pretty much the first grandchild among Cecilia's siblings. I had no cousins that I saw regularly, and really no competition. As far as I was concerned, I was the only child, and everyone loved me. It was like I peaked at five and it's been a real downhill slide since then. But those formative years of my life, I was so loved and cared for and nurtured. It was sometime around the age of six that things had started to change. One was that my brother was born, which added a different dynamic. We all adored him, but particularly my mum. He remained the apple of her eye right up until she died. But the other big thing that happened was she got a job as the social writer for one of Queensland's biggest newspapers. Despite teasing my dad about being a journalist when they first met, she had become one herself.
0: That's when I think it all fell apart because they were the old-day influencers. And, you know, everyone sort of just, they looked up to them like they were God.
1: You have to remember that in the early 1990s, the internet was not yet a big thing. It was still dial-up, there was no Facebook, no Instagram and no online newspapers. The way you were known was if you had your photo taken in the social pages of the physical newspaper. And at that time, the paper had readership of hundreds of thousands per day. If you were that social writer, you had the power to put someone in the paper. But it made it really hard to distinguish between what was real and what wasn't. And Joe had massive reservations about Mum taking that role for that exact reason.
0: So when Cecilia came over, I can remember it as clear as a bell. She came over one Friday night with Mark... And we were sitting on the front veranda and she was so excited and she said oh my god i've just got this job i'm going to be the social writer for the Corey Mail." and i just said to her promise me one thing i said don't be bought by anyone just stay true to yourself do your job but don't get sucked into the vortex of it all just stay real promise me and she said yeah i promise i will i said i'll tell you if you don't she said no 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 i will Well, God, within six months, you know, we are over at her place one afternoon. Doorbell, ding dong. Oh, hi, carton of Mowat from the Hilton Hotel. And I'd look at Cecilia and I'd say, hello. And she'd say, well, what can I do? They just send it to me without a word of a lie 20 minutes later. Ding dong, cartier watch from Stefan. I'm like, Cecilia, what the? Like, you promised me you wouldn't do this. She said, I can't help it. They just send it to me. So I think then... You know, it all got stuck in her head. She was just put up on a pedestal and, you know, every business was after her to come to every function. People were sending her away on the most amazing holidays and paying for everything. And it was breakfast, lunch and dinner. And there was always alcohol involved.
2: Look, I'd be a liar to say I wasn't a heavy drinker then and I'd be a liar to say she wasn't a heavy drinker and that's one of the things we had in common. But... Uh, her drinking got heavier because she was encouraged to drink. She was going to all these functions and it was free alcohol and it wasn't just free shadow to cardboard. You're talking about top-class wines, top-class champagne. So her drinking got heavier and um, mine probably stayed at a level where it started to drop off eventually when we had two kids. But it really put a strain on our relationship, a major strain.
0: I used to say to her, "Can't you see what's happening? These people don't care about you. Mm. They only want their photo in the paper and their business promoted." And all the rest she goes, "I'll tell you they are my very best friends." I go, "No they're not. I'm actually your very best friend because I'm being honest with you." But she she wouldn't have listened. She she loved it, which lots of people do. And she just got she just got swept up in the whirlwind and And there was no way out. Like, the deeper she got in it, there was no way she was coming out.
1: I guess it's pretty impressive that my mum was able to have a career and a family. After all, many women were struggling at that time to maintain the work-life balance. I remember our house was always packed with people. Mum was always entertaining on the deck with champagne and cheese platters and always regaling people with tales. And that's what she wrote about in the social pages too, tales about her friends. It's only now I realise those tales were always about other people, never about herself. Despite many public appearances, when your mum runs the social pages, you're pretty much at everything. My relationship with her had become pretty fractured. And when I was 10, she moved out of our family home. I kept hoping that we'd spark some sort of new relationship and I'd fantasise about all the things we'd be able to do together. She was always unavailable to me. She never picked me up from school or could take me shopping. On the rare times she did show some interest in our relationship, she would pull me in and then very quickly push me away. This dynamic had existed separate to alcohol, but her growing dependence on it had made things worse. Anyone who's ever loved someone with an alcohol dependence knows that there are varying degrees to their relationships and the way they can break down. I won't go into specifics of my mum and I's relationship over this time out of respect to her family, except to say that alcohol had taken its grip and she was clearly not behaving like herself. I now know it takes people around 18 years to first seek treatment for addiction to alcohol. There's a massive stigma associated with it. Mum had spent her final years in and out of hospital treating a number of ailments, but never the true cause. I remember going to hospital and visiting her one day. She was tinged yellow. She told me the doctor said she could have a drink at five o'clock. There's just no way that was true, but you could never rationalise with her. Like most people in her situation, she was very deep in denial. Were you hearing things around the town about her drinking and deterioration? Yeah,
2: it annoyed me in certain respects because alcoholism isn't something you make fun of and make fun of people. I have cut my drinking back by about 90%. If I was still drinking the way I was in the early 90s, I'd I'd be dead now too. And there's nothing funny about that.
1: Jo had lost touch with Mum after that job took over her life, but
0: she remembers seeing Cecilia at the hairdresser just six months before she died. A cab pulled up and my hairdresser, Denise, said to me, ''Oh, here's Cecilia.'' She said, ''She gets her hair done here.'' Once a week because she can't do it herself anymore. And when she got out of the cab, because the cab had to come and open the door for her and then help her out because she was on a walker. Um, Two crutches, yeah. And then Denise had to open the door and help her up the three steps into the salon. And I was just like, oh, my God. I just got such a fright when I saw her because she was just a bag of bones. She just Mm. looked like a really, really old Sad woman, but she still blew me away because she still had this amazing life in her head. It was Mm. like she wasn't do you think she accepted at all what was happening to her? Never. I don't think she actually looked in the mirror and saw what the rest of us saw. Yeah. We'd get in arguments about drinking. She'd be like, It's a lung infection And
1: I'd be like, What you yellow? Can't you see what I'm seeing? Yes And then she'd be on, you know, crutches at Trying to hobble around pubs at ten o'clock, you know, it was just. Then I felt so sickly sorry for her. Like I'd feel sick about it, but she still would always like have a, you know fabulous.
0: Oh nice yeah, she'd still get up and, and put her makeup on and get yeah. dressed nicely, and so I always sort of used to think that she wasn't seeing what we were seeing, and I think that she was living this, this false life in her head. I don't think I don't think she was living reality.
1: It was, I think, the 23rd of December, 2011. I was 24 and my mum was 56. I'd come to Brisbane for Christmas. That day, my mum's siblings had rang and told me she'd had a fall. She was in hospital. I was not to worry. She was okay, and she'd be home for our Boxing Day breakfast at the coast. It wasn't the first time I'd had a call like that. Over the years, there had been many close calls, but she always bounced back. At Christmas, I am always with my dad. I would never leave my dad alone on Christmas Day. But I started to get a really bad feeling. And I said to my dad, I'm going to drive to the coast and go to the hospital and see mum. So I drove up there and I walked into the hospital room and she just looked horrific. Half of her face was black and blue from the fall. And it, it took my breath away. But then the other half of her face was completely normal. It was such a confronting scene. I walked in and she said, no one's been to visit me but there was posters everywhere that said, "'Happy Christmas, Cecilia.' I knew people had been there. She seemed really disorientated. She was reading a book upside down, and she asked to go to the bathroom. When they moved her, I think this is probably when it happened, they moved her into a wheelchair, and then the nurse left her. She looked at me and gave this massive shudder, and she said, "'Literally, it's like somebody just walked over my grave.'" I remember thinking she looked so frail and helpless, and it was horrible. I was starting to feel quite sick. I kept saying, I've got to go, I'll be back tomorrow, I'll come and pick you up, we'll have our breakfast, and she kept begging me not to leave, and I kept saying I have to go, and they were trying to give her a blood transfusion, and I was getting really distressed. I said, Mum, I will be back, I'll come back tomorrow, and I'll see you for Boxing Day. And she just kept saying, please don't go, please don't go but I left. I went to my now husband's parents' place to meet them for the first time, and we went to sleep. At around four in the morning, his dad's knocking on the door and he says, have you looked at your phone? Your uncle's called the home phone and I think you need to call your family. I had 77 missed calls, and I knew things weren't good. We raced to the hospital, but she'd gone into a coma sometime after I left, and she never woke up. Five days later, she died, it was New Year's Eve, so I shouldn't have left, but I did. And what do you remember about the funeral and the wake?
2: In some ways, it was a celebration of her life. In other ways, it was just incredibly sad. I mean, it's an incredibly sad thing. She hasn't seen either of her children get married and have successful lives. She hasn't seen any of the six grandchildren. Uh, and I mean, it's uh, not for me to get up on the pulpit and preach, but it's all to do with alcohol. So it's one of those things that really, um, it's just incredibly sad. In fact, it really is incredibly sad.
1: Do you remember that photo of mum and her husband and that baby that made it into the slideshow at The Wake?
2: I do, but I know it. I'd never seen it before. I had no idea. Uh, I mean, if I'd seen that without her in the photo, say a photo had been blocked out, I wouldn't have known who the man was or the baby. Wouldn't have had a clue.
1: And did you remember thinking anything at the time? No. Do you remember me? being panicked
2: about yeah, it. Yeah, you were panicked about it. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't know. I presume that's Michael Davies. And I presume that's her baby. I don't know. I honestly don't know.
1: Throughout that night, I was on a hunt to get someone to talk to me. Everyone I asked kept saying, oh, it's so tragic. You know, what happened to Cecilia? It's such a tragedy. And we've got to start talking about things. Let's lift the lid. And I'm like, yes, let's lift that lid. But no one could give me any real answers. That was 12 years ago, and it's suffice to say, I have not stopped asking questions. On and off over the years, I started doing research into the time Cecilia was living in, the 1970s, and what options had been available to a pregnant teenager then. A time when the sexual revolution was just hitting our shores, but contraception wasn't widely available. A time when your parents and religion had more to say in your life than you did, and when being pregnant and unwed was seen as bringing the greatest of shame to your family. And a time when the solution to babies born out of wedlock was to adopt them into a better married family. I wanted to find answers about what had happened to my mum, but I knew it wasn't just about my mum. I felt it was so important to give voices to the women of this whole era, to all those women who suffered through the shame and the stigma of unwed pregnancies. But first, I needed to find out who is Michael Davies and who is the baby in that photo. Just getting in the car now to um, drive to births, deaths and marriages. Next time on Secrets We Keep, I begin the search for Michael Davies. Um, I've got all the documentation. And find out more about the options for women in the
0: 1970s. They weren't just 20th century values that they were teaching us, really, they were almost like 19th century values, backed up by the schools, that girls were just little virgins and that was how their life was to be lived until they were married.
1: If this episode has raised any issues for you, you can call the National Alcohol and Other Drugs Hotline on 1800 250 015 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Secrets We Keep, Shame Lies and Family is created and hosted by me, Amelia Oberhart. Produced by Jake Morecambe. Fact checking, Ben Sion Siebert. Sound design and mix by Niall Fernandez. Executive producer, Ellen Lee Beater. With assistance from Claire Weaver, Joey Watson, Jessica Wukyanov, Tara Cassidy, and James Royce. Natasha Jobson is our head of news ops, and Melanie Withnell, head of news and information. Episode two is available now. Subscribe and follow Secrets We Keep so you don't miss an episode.